Kentucky. Uh, for many of us, that's where our stories begin. Uh, for many of us, we were born here. Uh, for many of us, we were raised here. Uh, for many of us, we uh, started our families here. And uh, for many of us, we will, we will die here. Uh, but for some of us, others of us, uh, Kentucky may not be the beginning of your story, but it's certainly where your story continues at today. Perhaps you retired here. Maybe you moved closer to family and you came here. Maybe a life unexpected event brought you back or brought you here for the first time, but here you are. And that, this is the one thing that we all have in common. This is the one thing that we all share in this moment and in this place is the fact that we're all part of Kentucky's story. And story is now a part of our story. Uh, I love history, you know this about me, and, and I hope that you love history. Uh, but since Kentucky is a part of our story, and since it's home for us, at least for this moment in our life, since Kentucky is part of our story, and since we are a part of Kentucky's story, it's good to know a little something about the story of Kentucky. Uh, Kentucky became a state on June 1st, 1792. That's about 225 years ago. So 225 years ago, Kentucky became a state on June uh, the 1st. And what you may not know about the state of Kentucky is this, that we were the first state west of the Appalachian Mountains. And so when you read about the history of Kentucky, uh, historians love to call Kentucky the first west uh, because in many ways we were the westernmost frontier. Uh, we were as far as people had gone. Uh, we were on the cutting edge of innovation and advancement. We were the frontier. And so that's a little bit of our story. Some of you know the name of Dr. Thomas Walker. He passed through this state you know, somewhere around 1750. And then around 1775, another name that maybe you know, Daniel Boone. In April of 1775, Daniel Boone crossed the Kentucky River. And in a few weeks, he would make a permanent settlement at uh, Fort Boonesboro. And it would be the second oldest permanent settlement in the state of Kentucky. And there in April of 1775, when Daniel Boone crossed the Kentucky River and set up Fort Boonesboro, uh, it was also the same month when you look at what was happening outside of this place that would in time be known as Kentucky. Uh, the American Revolution started in June of 17, or April of 1775. And so America would fight Britain for our independence. And, and all of that was going on at the same time that this was going on in the state of Kentucky. And so when the American Revolution kicked off, uh, for whatever reason, lots of reasons, uh, people started flooding into the state. The population just started exploding. Uh, people would come and then more people would come and more people would come. And the population would double every couple of years because people were just flooding into this brand new frontier. Matter of fact, They've studied the origin of the name Kentucky. Now, many of you, like me, if in fourth grade, uh, if you went to school in Kentucky, in fourth grade, you had the history of Kentucky. So I still remember that textbook, a little red textbook called the history of Kentucky. And, and back then, people thought that the name Kentucky came from a word which meant the bloodied ground. And, and so lots of people still believe that. But now scholars, as they've dug and dug and dug and, and they've researched and researched, uh, they actually now believe that the term Kentucky, the name Kentucky comes from a word which means land of tomorrow. Just think about that for a moment. It was the land of tomorrow. And people ran here. And people left their families and their settlements and what was familiar, and they came here. The land of tomorrow. Because people had heard that the land here was rich for farming. And there was plenty of game for hunting. And so people left their homes and they came here to begin a new way of life. 
a new life, a better life, because they saw this place, this western frontier, this place that would be known as Kentucky, they saw it as a place where a brighter future could be had. They saw it as a place to bring their hopes and their dreams and their ideas about a better tomorrow. And they came here. Hundreds came and thousands came and tens of thousands came to the land of tomorrow. It's important for us to understand that once upon a time, Kentucky was thought of as the place for both a new life and a better life. That's how people thought of it. That, that was all the talk in the other places east of Appalachia and north beyond Ohio, that people were talking about this place called Kentucky and how it was a great place to go for new life and for a better life. And so the people just kept coming. But something happened. As people were pursuing a better future and as people were pursuing a better way of life and as they were working the land hard, and as they were trying to put bread and food on the table and they were trying to make livings and take care of their families, something began to happen, which often happens as we pursue a better future and a brighter tomorrow. Faith began to get pushed to the side and faith even by some got left behind. What little churches that existed in Kentucky at this particular point in time were basically empty. People were not thinking about faith. They knew about faith, but they weren't thinking about faith and they certainly wasn't, there wasn't a lot of interest about living out faith at that particular point in time. And so there was a spiritual drought in the land. There was a spiritual depression in the land of tomorrow. People had come here for a better tomorrow, a better future, but in the pursuit of it, faith had been left behind. But something happened around the turn of the century in the year 1800. Something would happen in the year 1800 in Kentucky that would change a generation, and not only change a generation, but would change future generations. And it happened in June of 1800 in a place that we know as Logan County, Kentucky. And there was a Presbyterian preacher by the name, by the name of James McGreedy. And James McGreedy was living at a very strategic time in history when many religious traditions were being left behind and many innovations were being introduced to the church. And I wish I could just give an entire talk about that idea. But many traditions were passing away and many new innovations were entering the church. And the religious establishment, the old guard in that day did not appreciate the new way of doing church. They did not appreciate the new innovations that were being introduced to Christians in this new frontier, this land of tomorrow, this place called Kentucky. James McGreedy decided that he would do his meetings a little bit different. And so he called for a meeting at what is known as Red River Meeting House in Logan County, Kentucky. And so at the Red River Meeting House, he would do a weekend full of meetings, a weekend full of meetings, and at the end of those meetings, they would celebrate communion and take the Lord's Supper together. And this was brand new. This is what you and I would refer to as uh, camp meetings. And so they were having weekend camp meetings and people would actually have to come there and camp all weekend. This was a brand new way of doing things. And what would happen that weekend in June at the Red River Meeting House would change everybody in that house. And not only change the people in that house, but it would change a generation and it would change generations to come. A revival broke out like no one in that circle had ever seen before. It was a revival that went north, that went east, that went west, that went south. It was a revival that spread in every direction. It impacted other leaders of that particular generation. Francis Asbury, Barton Stone, Peter Cartwright. You may remember him from the circuit riding preachers. Those leaders were also impacted by the revival that started at Red River Meeting House. 
other meetings would begin to happen and other revivals would spring up. Places maybe you've heard of like Caney Ridge or Cane Ridge, the Cane Ridge revivals. These series of meetings became known in history as the revival of 1800. And thousands upon thousands would get swept up into the kingdom of God as a result. At Cane Ridge, tens upon tens upon tens of thousands would gather there for those meetings. And thousands would turn their heart back to God. This is what was happening in Kentucky at the turn of the century. When people had come looking for a better tomorrow, and in the process they had left their faith behind, a revival broke out and people turned back to God, people turned back to Christ, people turned back to the church. But what happened in Kentucky on a broader scale became the sparks of one of the greatest revivals in all of history. What happened in Kentucky would spark one of the greatest revivals in all of history, a revival that we know as the Second Great Awakening. And the Second Great Awakening was started right here in Kentucky because the leaders of the Second Great Awakening would be influenced by the revivals like at the Red River Meeting House and also at Cane Ridge. And so the sparks that began in Kentucky, the sparks of revival would actually turn into a movement of revival that would sweep the entire nation where millions would get swept into the kingdom of God. And it reminds us a little bit about our history that once upon a time, Kentucky was the starting point for an awakening that changed the faith of a generation and impacted the faith of future generations. A single moment, a single moment at Red River Meeting House, a single moment at Cane Ridge, a single series of moments sparked a movement. And that's how it often happens, a single moment a series of moments that create the momentum that starts a movement. And this is what we see all throughout history because all throughout history, you can find God at specific places of geography doing a very unique and special work. And God will do something in one place so it will spark a movement of God in another place. And we see this happening all throughout Christian history. Matter of fact, this is how our faith first started. 120 followers of Jesus gathered in the upper room in Jerusalem and there they were praying and there they were waiting. They were praying and they were waiting. And then all of a sudden the spirit of God fell and in that moment, a movement started that is still moving today. It is a movement that we are all a part of today. A moment can create a movement. This was true at Pentecost. This was true in the early history of Kentucky. And so my question is for us, what if it could be true for us as a church? What if it could be true that one single moment, a single moment for you, a single moment for me, a single moment for us, or a series of moments could create the momentum that is needed to start a movement? What if that could be true for us? What if God could do something in us and through us that would spark a movement of God what if God could do something in us and through us that would lead to the next great awakening? What if God could do something in you and in, you and in me and in us that would actually change the faith of not only this current generation, but would change the faith of a future generation? What if that's true? It was true for a guy by the name of Nehemiah, one of my favorite folks in the Old Testament, because this idea of God doing something special in a special place it's not unique to the New Testament and it's not even unique to the Old Testament. This just seems to be how God does things from time to time, that God will pick a place and God will do something special and unique, something that is beyond explanation so that a generation could be changed, so that future generations can be impacted. This happened in the life of Nehemiah. Nehemiah was a Jewish cupbearer 
to a Persian king by the name of King Artaxerxes. He was living in Persia years before, years and years before, about 70 or so years before. His homeland, the place that he called home, Jerusalem, had been invaded and ransacked and ravaged by a Babylonian king by the name of Nebuchadnezzar. And Nebuchadnezzar came in. And when Nebuchadnezzar brought his army in, they destroyed the temple. They destroyed the city. They killed thousands. They took other thousands as prisoners of war. And then on their way out of town, they destroyed the walls around the city. Now, in the few years leading up to the story of Nehemiah, there had been some people who had gone back to the homeland and started to rebuild. Zerubbabel went back and started to rebuild the temple. Ezra went back and led a spiritual revival. But Nehemiah's in Persia and he's waiting and serving on King Artaxerxes when some of his friends who have gone to Jerusalem have come back from the homeland. And he looks at them and says, how was your trip? How was your journey? Tell me about how things are back home. And this is what Nehemiah said. So they said to me, those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. And the wall of Jerusalem is broken down. Everybody say broken down. down. The walls of Jerusalem. They are broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. And so here's what they do. They start giving him the facts. They start telling him about how bad things are. They give him a picture of what life is back back home. They said the people are in trouble and the people are in disgrace. In other words, they say, hey, Nehemiah, it's never been this bad before. It's never been like this. The people feel disgraced. The people feel like they're in trouble. And Nehemiah said, when I heard these things, I sat down and I wept for some days and I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. It broke his heart. When he heard about how things really were, it broke his heart. It bothered him. He didn't, he didn't ignore it. He wasn't so busy with his job or his career, or with his family or with his life that he just said, oh, that's too bad, that's so sad, you know, and then went on and just did his thing. No, this broke his heart. He wept. He mourned, he fasted, he prayed because he knew that a city without walls, it was no city at all. And this is what I love about Nehemiah. He was confronted with the reality of things. And when he heard about the reality of things, he wanted to take responsibility for those things. It's one thing to be confronted with the reality of things, but it is an entirely different thing to want to take responsibility for the reality of things. Nehemiah could have said, it's not my problem, it's not my deal. I've got problems of my own. But when he heard about the reality of things, he wanted to take responsibility for the reality of things. He wept and he prayed. It broke his heart and it inspired his prayers. And so here's my question for all of us. Will the reality of what's happening in our state do the same for us? Will it break our hearts? Will it bother us? Will it break our hearts and inspire us to pray, God, give us Kentucky? What will the reality of the place that we call home do to us? Will it break our hearts? Will it drive us to prayer? Because the walls are broken down and the people are in trouble and the people are in disgrace. Let me tell you about the reality of things. We're the fourth poorest state in the nation. We're not the poorest, but we're the fourth poorest, and that's poor. We're in the top tens as it relates to the number of suicides. We're the fifth least educated state in the nation. We have the highest rate of cancer in the country. We have among the lowest life expectancy in the United States of America. Some of our counties in Kentucky 
have a life expectancy a dozen years less than what the average life expectancy is in other parts of the country. We lead the way towards the top of those who suffer with depression. We lead towards the top in number of overdoses. One in four of our children live in poverty. One in four of our little girls that grow up in this state will be sexually abused before they're 18. One in six of our boys will be sexually abused before they're 18. We're top 10 in diabetes. We're top 10 in obesity. We have the highest rate of grandparents raising grandchildren in all of the nation. We have the second highest number of parents incarcerated in all of the country. We have 100,000 kids right now in this moment in our state that cannot live with their parents. And this is all the while we have more churches than we've ever had. We have lifeless faith and loveless theology. We've got people all up and down every part of Kentucky who looks at the local church and says, I'm not wanted there, I'm not welcome there. We've got people that have the wrong idea about God, the wrong idea about Jesus, the wrong idea about the church, the wrong idea about what it means to follow Jesus. Seven out of 10 will walk away from faith before they're 21. For every one that comes to faith, four will walk away. The walls are broken down. Too many of our children and too many of our men and too many of our women, they no longer think of a land that is about tomorrow. They no longer think about dreaming about a better future or a brighter tomorrow. They don't feel like they live in a land that's about tomorrow. They feel like they live in a wasteland. They feel like they live in a land that is hopeless and loveless. When you look across our state and as the walls are broken down, those who are successful are struck with emptiness. And those who are struggling to get by are filled with brokenness. The walls are broken down. And we need an awakening in our generation. We need a revival in our generation. We need God to do something in this part of the world that will perhaps change the rest of the world. We need God to do something in our generation that impacts and inspires future generations. This is the reality of things. But will we step up to take responsibility for the reality of things? What will we do with the broken down walls? Whereas Jesus looked at his followers one day and said, look at those fields. They're so rich for harvest, but there's nobody who's working the fields. So pray to the God of the harvest that he would send laborers out there because the harvest is great. But the workers are few. Will the reality of things break our hearts and inspire us to pray prayers like God break our hearts for what could be and what should be. God, give us Kentucky. Let's pray that together out loud. God, break our hearts for what could be and what should be. God, give us Kentucky. May we be a people of big prayers. Jesus said if you have 
the faith the size of a mustard seed. You can move mountains. Paul said that when you pray, that you know you're praying to a God who could do far more than you could ever ask or think. What if God could do something in us that would bend history, change the trajectory of things, bring back hope and life and love to a people who need hope, life, and love? What if we could be a part of something where untold numbers of people could get swept up into the kingdom of God? Heavenly Father, break our hearts for what could be and what should be. God, give us Kentucky. The walls are broken down. The fields are ready for harvest. The walls of the family are broken down. The walls of finances are broken down. The walls of health are broken down. The enemy has come in and he has stolen and he has killed and he has destroyed. But Jesus, you said you've come that we may have life and we have it to the full. You came to bring a new life and a better life. So God, give us Kentucky. Let us be a light that shines into the corners of the darkest dark. And let us be the voice of hope and the face of love and the tone of compassion and the hands that help and lift. God, give us Kentucky. In Jesus' name, and everybody said, favorite um, stories from the life of Jesus is when he is with his disciples and they come upon a group of people and it says that Jesus saw that they were hurting 
and that they were broken and he had compassion on them. And he saw them as being victims of sin. And then he looked at his disciples and he said, look, look at the fields that are white for harvest. Even though the harvest is big, the workers are few. Pray that God would send workers out into the field. And that's how I feel when I think about our state. Our state is leading the way in so many other things that we don't want to lead the way in. Poverty, lack of education, child abuse, divorce, depression, suicide, the incidence of cancer, and all the things that indicate brokenness and, and all the things that indicate a problem. We are near the top of the list. And, and once you know where we live and once you see how things really are, uh, it, it really should bring us to the place where, like Jesus, uh, our hearts are broken. Eastern Kentucky is underchurched. And I don't mean there are not enough church buildings in Eastern Kentucky because there are already too many, but I mean they are underchurched. They are under Jesus, at least. There is a drought of spiritual nourishment. A drought. My dad was a truck driver, so he was always in and out, in and out. My mom worked long hours, so it was really my two older sisters that took care of me. Come middle school, I started smoking pot and drinking. Didn't really get into it that much. I did it social thing. When I was little, with my mom and dad, we would go to church every Sunday. And as I growed, got it older, I started running with a different crowd, got in the wrong path. I met a guy that he abused me. I went through abuse. It took me down in a drug abusive relationship. Um, met Tammy, me and Tammy worked together. We were friends for a couple years. Um, then we got together and, and the drug use become an everyday problem. We got pregnant with Jackson, our first little boy, in 2012. We were excited, you know. It is, we'd been married for three or four years and we'd always had miscarriages. Our son Jackson was born. I held him, seen his eyes, heard him cry the whole nine yards. And then all of a sudden he started coughing. It went downhill. I kept telling myself in that, that operating room or asking God, take me, leave, leave him for her. Let her be happy, and he didn't. That was hard, but the hardest thing in my life that I've ever had to do is wake Tammy up and tell her your son is gone. To wake up from anesthesia to find out that your little boy didn't make it, my world fell apart. I couldn't understand it, I kept questioning God. You know, why are you doing this to me? After we buried Jackson, mine and James's marriage, started falling apart. The, the drug use picked up big time. I got into more than just marijuana and drinking. I started getting into the harder drugs. It got to where we were spending more money on, on our habits than on our well-being. And we hit rock bottom.
in some ways I have been opposed to church planting because I see people planting churches in communities that have churches just like them. And, and I don't think that, I think that's growing for the sake of adding numbers. I wanna see people nourished and met where they are in their own communities without setting pretense, without setting conditions. I think if we say we are going to be radically inclusive, we have to be radically inclusive. And I think we have to go into communities in Eastern Kentucky where we don't have that and we have to open new churches and we have to let the old churches die. In those days, we were just so eager to do anything that we could to, to expand the kingdom and grow the church. And so we saw, you know, 40, 50 people coming from Somerset, Pulaski County. And, you know, we just thought, well, we've got to start a campus in Somerset and Pulaski County. When we launched the Somerset campus, uh, you know, everybody was excited. And, and that's kind of how things are. You're excited at the very beginning. And, and then you realize, okay, uh, we're doing this. And this is not going to be easy work. And some of the realities of multi-site, setting up, tearing down every week, uh, th that became a challenge and it became a reality that we just had to learn how to deal with. When we lost Jackson, we hit rock bottom and everything fell apart for us. We give up. We didn't want to try no more. We didn't want to hurt no more. So we set up doctor's appointment. The day that she decided to get a hysterectomy is the day we found out we were pregnant with Riley. It was a miracle because we didn't think we would ever have another child. I knew then that I had to get my life right to be able to raise Riley right. We get home that night and I'll never forget it. And I was sitting straight across from Tammy and I looked at her and said, I want a healthy child, I want a healthy family. We started going to church, not every Sunday, but most Sundays, but it just still wasn't home. Churches are churches, but they didn't make you feel wanted. They, you know, they were glad you came, but sometimes I felt I was just another butt in a seat. Somebody to sit and fill this church up. over the last two years, we've seen consistent growth from week to week to week. We've seen 39 people baptized in the last two years in Somerset. Um, we've gone from averaging around 150 to right now, I think we're averaging 450 a week. Something just was different there. You go in and you felt at home. I've never been to a church like the Creek that accepts you not based on your appearance, not based on your wallet size or bank account. To me, you can be a homeless person and have rags, or you could be a millionaire and have riches. And they'll walk right up to you and talk to you like they've known you for 50 years. You don't have to know every name in a church to know you're wanted there. It's individuals accepting and loving God the way they are.
My sister and I had not sat in church together for 13 years. And when she texted me that night that we got baptized that morning, and she says, sis, I can't quit crying. And she said, just to see you praising God. I never thought I'd get to see that. She said, I honestly thought that I was going to be looking at you in a casket. I've, I've read the Bible more going to the creek than I have my entire life. It's helping me grow with God, and it's really helping me and James grow together with Riley to be able to look on her eyes and her get up on Sunday mornings and say, Mom, I want to go to church. It's a big difference. I used to wake up thinking, where am I going to get my next fix? Who the next person am I going to take from? And now it's, thank you, Lord, for letting me wake up another day. stuck out to me when I first learned about the Creek was the original 45 people who invested so much into the future of their church that the pain became so great that they couldn't sit with where they were. They had to change. They had to do something. And I think the same is true for Somerset, that we can't stay where we are. I think a permanent location for our Somerset campus gives us the opportunity to reach more families like James and Tammy. in the state of Kentucky are east of 75, which coincidentally are where the most churches are located. Uh, we've got big problems. So that's what I mean when I say I think Eastern Kentucky is in a spiritual drought and we have to start watering it. And we water it with love. And that's gonna suck and it's gonna be hard and it's gonna be expensive and it's gonna push us nine miles outside our comfort zone, but we are not living up to our full potential as Christians until we do it. When we look out there and we see the problem and we know the answer, how can we not do something about it? When we believe that there's communities filled with people who don't like church, who have the wrong idea of God, the wrong idea of Jesus, the wrong idea of scripture, how can we not do something about it? There's so many people in our church today that are reaping the benefits of what other people have sown over the past few years. And now for many of us, this is the first time that we get the opportunity to sow. And one day we believe that the story that we're a part of, that there are gonna be people who are sitting in our buildings all across this state that are gonna be reaping the benefits of what we had the opportunity to sow in this moment. We looked out there, we saw the field, it was white for harvest, we did the hard work, we tilled the ground, we planted the seed, God sent the water, and one day there's gonna be an increase. We're all going to get to share in the increase because this isn't about one of our churches. This is about all of our church. This is about something that we get to do together because alone, no one can do it by themselves. This is about all of us realizing that this is the next step. This is something we have to do. This is something that we need to do. People's future faith depends on it. Every 
and think about their friends, their family. I think they ought to think about their sons or daughter, or maybe their future sons or daughters. I think they ought to think about their nephew or their nieces. I think they ought to think about the guy they work for or the guys or the ladies that work for them. They ought to think about the people that they rub shoulders with at the ball field, the people that they grew up with because they're from here and they stayed here. They ought to think about those people that they know the names of that are far from God. And that's why they should be involved. That's the reason they should step up. That's the reason that they should put a seed in the ground because they are praying that part of that increase, part of that reward that's gonna come as a result may very well be the people in their family, in their circle, they call friend that God chooses to change their life as a result of what the Creek Church is doing. Uh, James and Tammy's story reminds us of that the fields are so rich for harvest. Their story reminds us that the walls are still broken down. But their story also reminds us that we're working the field. As a church, we've decided to start rebuilding the wall. We've decided that we're going to take responsibility for the reality of things. When Nehemiah went back home and he gathered up a group of people and he took them to the broken down walls, and he said, look at the walls, they're broken down. This is the problem, and it's bad news. But the good news is, you and me and we are the solution. We need to get moving and we need to get doing something, so let's rise up and build. And the people said, let's do it. And so they owned it and they participated in it. It's the same thing that Jesus invited us to do when he said the fields are ready for harvest. We just need workers. So look around at the reality of things. And the news is bad. But the good news is, we can be the solution. We can be the light that shines into the darkest corners, into the darkest places. Our state has problems and people talk about them all the time. They talk about poverty and they talk about addiction and they talk about education and disease and despair. Since the 1960s, our government has pumped billions upon billions upon billions upon billions of dollars into Kentucky and Appalachia. And I, that's good, that's a blessing. I hope they keep on doing it. But at the end of the day, money is not the answer. At the end of the day, policies are not the answer. At the end of the day, laws are not the answer. At the end of the day, elections are not the answers. Politicians are not the answer. Jesus is, always has been, always will be the answer. He is the only answer for men and women's despair, for the problems that break our heart. And he said that we, the church, we are the hope of the world, that we get to be part of the solution. 
That's why we as a church, that's why we want Creek churches all over this state. This is our way of rebuilding the wall. This is our way of working the field. This is our way of sowing and letting God water and trusting God for the harvest. This is, this is the way that we believe that God has called us to do it. Because we believe Jesus makes life better. And we believe that if there are communities of faith like the Creek Church all over the state, where people can know they're welcome there and wanted there and loved there, that it can be a place where they can come and get whole again, where they can learn to live again, where they can learn to be loved and to love again. With communities of faith like the Creek Church all over this state, I believe God could do something in our generation that could spark a movement that would change future generations. We aren't trying to grow our church. We are trying to change the world. That's what we're trying to do. And changing the world begins with changing our part of the world. So let's go. Let's keep on rebuilding. Let's keep on working the field. Let's finish what God has started. Summer said this morning, God willing, fingers crossed, standing on one leg, we're going to move dirt in the next week. We're going to build a building there. And it's going to be a game changer. It's going to change the horizon for Pulaski County. It's going to reach further west, and it's going to reach further northwest. It's going to reach further south. And it's going to be the next big step in what God is going to do in our church and through our church. Williamsburg is a little over a year old. A little over a year old. In August, we plan to announce the next two locations for where Creek Churches are going to be located next. We want to remodel kids here in London. We want Somerset kids, Williamsburg kids, and every Creek Church campus kids department that comes after to be the absolute single best place for kids in that community. We want kids, we don't want them to think about where the next birthday party is, where they can go have fun. We want them waking up every Sunday morning thinking, I got to get to the Creek Church. Mom, Dad, wake up, wake up, wake up. We got to go to church. We want to build churches that are the most inspiring, faith-filling, hope-speaking, life-instilling, encouraging communities that exist in that particular part of our state. We are praying for a move of God. We are the move of God. We just need to start moving. And so here's what I need you to do. For those of you who are looking to pick up a tool and start working the ground. For those of you who are looking to pick up some stone and rebuild the wall. Here's what I need all of us the creatures to do. I need us to start praying big. I need us to pray big prayers. I need us to pray prayers like, God, give us Kentucky. This is not Trevor Barton's prayer. This is just not the church's prayer. I want this to be your prayer. I want this to be our family's prayer. God, give us Kentucky. I want us to pray big because we have a big God who said if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you can speak to the mountain and the mountain be moved. I need you to serve. I need you to get involved. You may see all the t-shirts at the Creek Church and think they don't need me. They're getting by fine without me. I'm telling you, it's not like it looks. We need you 
to be involved. We need you to be the hands and the feet of Jesus. We need you to be the mouthpiece of Jesus. We need you to be the compassion and the love and the grace and the truth of Jesus. I need you. We need you. We need each other to be involved. And then I need you to give. I need you to give and to give generously. If we're going to do what God's called us to do, it's going to require generosity. So let me talk to just a few of you for just a moment. For those of you that God's been better to than what you ever thought God would be to you. And you've got more than you need. And if you were honest, you've got way more than you need. I want to ask you to pray about giving a generous gift. Maybe the biggest gift you've ever given to the kingdom of God over the next couple of weeks. For some of you, that may be $100,000. For some of you, that may be $500,000. For some of you, that may be a million. That may be five million, that may be 10 million. It may be $20 million, I don't know. But if God has brought you to a unique place in the storyline of history, maybe God has put you where you are to fund the movement that can rebuild the wall and reap the harvest. For those of you who tithe and you do it week in and week out, thank you so much for your consistency, for your generosity, for your discipline. And for those of you who tithe and you give, but but you, you just don't even think about it anymore. You don't even miss it anymore. You've been given so long, you don't even think about it. I want you to pray about thinking about taking a step further into greater commitment. It's not about the size of our gift. It's about the size of our sacrifice. It's about the motive of our heart. For those of you who don't, and you can, I wanna encourage you to start. We're praying for a move of God and you are part of that move. You are the body of Christ and I need you to get moving. I need you to start giving. I need you to help do what God's called us to do as a church. And then for those of you who want to, but you can't, no guilt, no shame. But if you want to be generous and you feel like you can't, you let us know and we'll put you in touch with a counselor who can coach you in your finances, who can get you to the place that you want to be so that you can be generous. This is an opportunity for us to do something in our generation. We have what it takes to change things. If we don't, it isn't because we couldn't. It's because we wouldn't. And we know, come on, we already know this is working. It's worked for your family. It's worked for your grandkids. It's worked for your wife, it's worked for your husband, it's worked for your boss, it's worked for your employees, it's worked for your friends. You've seen so many people you love and care about be baptized, set free from the thing that's been holding them back. So come on, we know this is already working. We're already rebuilding some of the wall. We're already reaping some of the harvest, but we're not done yet. And I need you, and I need us, and I need we. To get moving because perhaps one day when the historians tell the story of history 
Maybe they will write an additional paragraph after the revival of 1800. And not only will they mention the Red River Meeting House, and not only will they mention Cane Ridge, but maybe, just maybe, they'll mention a group of men and women, families from the Creek Church who believe that God had called them to push back darkness in the place they love. And maybe by the end of our generation, we will have moved the needle that families are stronger, that health is better, that hope is coming alive and people are dreaming again. Heavenly Father, do what you've done before. Do it again. God, let us get involved. Let us take the step. Let us commit to be involved, to give, to pray. This is the, this is the most important thing we'll ever be involved in. So God, help us to pray the prayer. God, give us. God, give us Kentucky. Let us be light into the darkness. Let us be hope for the hopeless. Let us bring life to those who need it, who are far from